Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's when no, it's um Monday already still. Yeah, Monday of the nine days um, in the afternoon. And I'm going to see if I can do the Parsha uh, today. Uh, it's going to be hopefully a packed week um, with uh, Tisha B'Av and everything coming up. So let's uh, take a look at Parsha Svarim, at least a bit of it. Um, and this is being sponsored by uh, Dr. Ehud Sasson, who I had the pleasure of meeting the other day when I was in Tinet. He came over to our house where I was staying. And um, as I said before, we had a lot of fun, I hope, even though we had some uh, different ways of looking at the Ibn Ezra. Now, um, uh, and he's a, both a Sephardi and Ashkenazi, has both, both about backgrounds, interesting. Now, um, if you look at Pasha's Tavarim, of course, which is always unusual, because it's the speech of Moshe Rabbeinu, and therefore, we have an extremely subjective uh, recounting of the past. Uh, you know, Moshe and Rosh Chodesh Shabbat. He dies, as we all know, in the month of Ador. So this is a few weeks. The speech of Eilat Dvarim is a few weeks before his death. <clears throat> I mean, really, but a month. Months and seven days. So, um... What's he doing? He's telling over the history of the Jewish people. He can't do that in such a short bit. But this is, he's getting off his chest. And whenever you have somebody telling over the past, or especially the past in which they were involved, obviously it's extremely subjective. I'm not comparing Moshe Rabbeinu to American politician, but when your politician tells you, you know, the story of his administration, I'm like, that's highly subjective. Now, um, what's interesting, of course, is Moshe Rabbeinu's subjectivity is actually pretty cool. And the Rabbanu Shalom said, I would have put this in the Chumash. Now understand this well. When you read in the Chumash, at least according to the way we understand it, according to the party line, uh, everything in the Chumash is dictated by God. So that means whatever exactly were the words that Moshe recited, when it was re- when it was put down on paper to be part of the Torah, I means Hashem said, I'm telling you to write the following words, Elah Dvor Moshe Dibir Moshe. And maybe Moshe would have said, you know, I didn't exactly say it that way. If Hashem said, listen, you put down the way I tell you. Um, that's like an important yisod. The only gun goes in it, W.C. Hoffman goes in you know, it's just interesting. Otherwise, you have something which is not um, really part of the Chumash. We'd have, instead of Chumash, you have the four books, and then the book of Dvarm, which would be in its own category. But we regard Dvarm as part of the Chumash. So that means these are the words of Moshe as retold by God. Uh, of course, when you get God's subjectivity, is the same thing. There's no question that the Chumash refle- reflects a subjective reading of history, not an objective reading of history, because there is no such thing. Whenever you tell anything over in the past, unless you include every datum, which is physically impossible, uh, you want to make a selection of facts. As soon as you make a selection of facts, there's your bias. So, 
the, we look to the Chumash as Hashem's bias. <laughs> you understand? But we say like this, that's okay. <laughs> I don't mind God's bias. That's good enough for me. You see? That, that's, that's the way to look at it. Uh, objectively, we can uh, tie it this way, that way. But subjectively, we get the Chumash. Now, uh, therefore, Moshe, very interestingly, in this week's Pasha, as you know, it's Dvarim B'schan and Eke It's one long speech. But I have to take this week by week. And what struck me when I was thinking about it were two things. Number one, uh, what Moshe leaves out. And that is, this speech has been given right after the events of the Book of, of, of Amidbar. So the story already in Chukas, you're holding by um, the last year of Moshe's life. And Miriam and Arantai and so forth and so on, that takes you into past Rosh Hashanah of that year. And therefore the events of Bilam and Balak, uh, things like that, um, Parshat Pinchas, these um, took place literally in the last several months of the, lives of, Mo- of the life of Moses, which is just interesting. And the book of Bamidbar ended on a strange note because there were two weaknesses that were revealed, A and B. And if it's in the Chumash, it means it's permanent, existential. And these weaknesses were not solved, only managed. Uh, one is the Benos Moab, and the other one is the two and a half tribes. The over-emphasis on the Gashmias and materialistic things. I didn't write the Chumash, that's what it says. You have the story, as we all know, Pinchas Matas Masay. Right? Bolak Pinchas Matas Masay. By the time you get to Bolak Pinchas, you have the Benos Moab, which didn't turn out well and only was stopped by the zealotry of, of Pinchas. And as I said before, the meaning of that, at least as I understand it, is that without Pinchas stepping forward, it would have collapsed. The whole Jewish people would have collapsed. Which means they're telling you something powerful. That the phenomenon of the Benos Moav, broadly interpreted, is just an existential danger and never goes away. And it's something the Jewish people are weak to. It's like kryptonite to Superman. You understand? That's what they're saying. Just avoid it. And number two, you have the materialism that is revealed. And that's why Moshe blew up at the two and a half tribes when they say we want Al Tavirenos Ayardin. And Moshe, you know, really let him have it. It's only at the end they worked out a deal, which the two and a half tribes did adhere to. But it's very famous, and I know you don't need to hear from me. It's like, it's already a medrash, actually. And every rabbi who's ever given a speech will tell, say this one over. That they first said, That they first said, We'll take care of our sheep and our children. In other words, they put their Gashmias, their, their property, ahead of their kids. You know, they're too materialistic. And Moshe later on told them, you know, um, build something for your children and then for your cattle. Now, Moshe said, get your priorities straight. I forgot the exact expression, right? They said, Gidra Tapenu. And he, Moshe said, you know, do something for Penulachem Arichem Latavchem and something Latzonchem. So, in other words, Moshe said, you, you know, you don't understand what's important, what's not important. Um, this it becomes, this is food for any rabbi, because this is becomes a signature 
uh, description of the two existential problems that Jews have throughout history, and particularly in the 20th and 21st century after they received their emancipation. Once the Jews got the civil rights, they ran into the big problem of Benos Moav, which is, as you all know, literally destroying the Jewish people as we speak, um, certainly in America. And the other one is <clears throat> this Gidras Son Nivnel Mignano Povar and this materialism that places such a powerful emphasis, you know, we'd rather live in a non-Jewish neighborhood as long as, the, you know, the, as the, uh, the the economic level is better. Um, and that's something that's killing us now also. What's interesting is how it's creeping in the from world, because there's a lot of millionaires popping up in the from communities these days, more and more, young people, and how they're going to handle the problem. I'm not talking about the Minnesota small, but I'm talking about the problem of the two and a half tribes, they worry about the uh, money. That becomes the dominant feature. Now, interestingly, this is the immediate background of the Book of Dvarim. And yet Moshe, as far as I remember, doesn't mention it over here. Instead, he goes into a, a very brief description of what happened from the time they marched away from Mount Sinai to the wards of Sichon and Og. Right to the words of Sichon and Og. I mean, those are the words actually it says in, in the Chumash. Achari hakoso e sicha melcha mori asher yishay b'cheshbom v'yes og melcha boshan asher yishay b'ashtoros bedre ho'il Moshe b'yasa Torah so slaymor. So the Chumash goes to the trouble of saying that if you want to understand how and why and when and where Moshe gave this speech, you have to understand the, the historical background <coughs> which was not that Moshe is dying or anything like that, although that's certainly a major part of it. It's Achrei HaKoso Esich Mesog. Now, that's fine. And it doesn't even surprise me necessarily <coughs> that Moshe would not want to bring up the Benos Moav and the materialism part. Although the materialism will pop up later. I, I remember in Voschan and Reik of Rey, it'll say, you know, Koch uh, Yosem all that kind of stuff. You know, when you when you inherit the land, don't get don't get carried away with it. Or in Batsuras good uh what do you call it, you know, crummy mashalona tato and you'll find karka, you know, the sato sashilona tato, you the 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 Canaanite wealth will fall in your lap and you will acquire a great deal of wealth without having uh, you know, struggle to, to make it happen. Pantokov is avoto. And then you'll go off to Derek because of being corrupted by prosperity, which of course happened. So he does address that part. The Benos Mov, as far as I remember, he doesn't address. Um, that's just interesting. Now, that led me to think about Sichanog, and <clears throat> caught my eye today, just now. Um, now, if you noticed it, although the, uh, the Nitziv does, uh, not here, but elsewhere, listen very closely. <clears throat> The story is that the Jews want to get into Israel. And the story is, as you know, that they go from, let's say, a lot. It's, it's in this week's Pasha. Vanefen, Vanavor, and all that. <clears throat> Heading up from, I and mean, you know the map well enough. They march through either the Negev, let's put it this way, the eastern side of Negev, or maybe already in what we call today Jordan, the, the kingdom of Jordan. And they go up, not straight into Israel. Oh, that would have been the easiest route. <clears throat> Just proceed from 
let's say a lot or etzion gever as they call it, in a straight line, up through the Negev, you come up by Beersheba, and five minutes later in Yerushalayim, you know that, you know the map, and you're already holding an Eretz Yisrael. <clears throat> and if you, if, if you have to fight to take over the land, so you do so. After all, they're going to have to fight anyway in the end. That would have been the simplest <clears throat> business. And they wouldn't have to go the other way, which involved all this Mishagas, of having to traverse Edom, Moab, Ammon, Sichon, Og. It's just strange. In other words, let's say that they were sinners by Meraglim. Okay. And they had to wait there in 40 years till they all die out. Okay, I get it. And now it's 40 years is over. Fine. So now's the time to move to Israel. Right? Now's the time. And I'll tell you again, Moshe, you know, recounts all this in this week's Parsha um, in a little bit of a roundabout fashion. And, uh, you know, he says, and, and, and head northward. But as we know, with the Meraglim and all the other business, they end up taking a circuitous route. And instead of entering Israel in the normal way, they go in a, in a roundabout flank way. Which perhaps, since this is the week of Tisha B'Av, is a foreshadowing of the future Jewish relationship with Eretz Yisrael. That's never normal. You understand? You can never get the country in a normal way. You always have to circumvent, circuitous, go around. They have the United Nations. They have the Alfred Declaration. They had to buy the land in the way they bought it. Everything's, you know, every like somebody runs, runs through the famous book, Thieves in the Night, Arthur Kessler. They, they couldn't acquire Eretz Yisrael in a normal way. So that's what happened that time. But what happened to Misa? Listen closely. You're marching north. And so you get to, let us say, the territory, how should I put it, below the, the the Red Sea. If you're interested in what I'm saying right now, just go online to make yourself easier. You get a color map and just Google Chalukas Arts L'Shvatim. Chalukas Arts L'Shvatim. I don't say it's a perfect map, but it's it's not. But it's it's very useful for our purposes. Right? And you'll see you're marching you know, northward, as they say, and then when it comes to the, to the Yama Melech, instead of going left, instead of going west, which is straight into Israel, I mean, your mom's straight in Israel then, the area of Yehuda, instead they go right, and you run into Moab. All right, so Hashem said, okay, fine. And as you know, they had to circumvent, go around Moab. Uh, I remind you, Bilaam wanted back from the Jews the land that had been taken from Moab. The Jews never attacked Moab. You know, it was the Sichon who, who took it from them. But be that as it may, you know, the area you call Ruvain used to be belonged to Moab. Uh, so the Jews went around Moab, and they also circumvent on Ammon. So they couldn't go directly into Israel through Moab. Well, you can't go through to Israel through Moab anyway. If you look at the map closely, you'll see that if they wanted to go to Israel through Moab, they would have to have a bunch of boats and cross the Yamamelch, the, 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 the Dead Sea, which at that time was much bigger than it is today. Although that would be just very interesting. You could have a lot of good Vartoras if the Jews invaded, like the Vikings, you know, the land of Israel through ships that they con- conducted. I want you to understand, you know this because you've all been in Israel and Yerushalayim. 
you can come out crossing the Yama Melch and come out right near Yushalayim, near Beit Lechem. It's not so far away. As you know very well, there are places you can stand in Yushalayim and you can see the Yama Melch. Right? But that wasn't the plan. Hashem said, don't do that. Don't use Moab as a springboard for invading the country. Okay, fine. Alma is not Nogea because Alma is not really, as far as I can tell, uh, touching the Yardin or the land of Eretz Yisrael. But they did go into Sichon. Now, Moshe says that when the time, we've marched up the right side, the eastern side of the Yamamelech, mountainous area, and you go around Moab, in order to get into Israel, you got to cross through the land of Sichon. So basically what they were doing was like a, a Paro, Necho, and Yoshio in reverse. There, as we all know the story pretty soon, it's going to be Tishabov. They're going to talk about Baikoni Yermiel Yoshio. The Egyptian army wanted to traverse Jewish territory to go fight someone else. And the king of Yehuda said no uh, to his uh, disaster. Here also, Moshe says in our Parsha to um, Sihon, let us go through and, and, and there'll be no trouble. Okay? Um, no trouble. Uh, it says. It's very interesting. Kumusu Vivrus Nachalarnon. Cross the Nachalarnon. If you look at the map closely, you can see where the Arnon is. That would be the northern border of the kingdom of Moab. And then you're entering the area that became Ruvain. But that time was the land of Sichon. I'm trying not to get you confused. Attack him. Hiskarbomachom is a funny expression. Hiskarbomachom. Uh, you know, sick them to war. You know, if I want to, I could start a fight with somebody, just give you a punch in the ribs. So that's what you do, get sick them to war. So the reason that I am doing this, Hashem says, is I want to freak out all the other guys. If they hear you defeated Sichon, then that will cause them to have a uh, panic and a crisis and you know, and make it easier for you to fight them. See, here God is playing mind games with the nations, Middle East, especially the Canaanites. And in spite of that, Moshe sends peace messages. And Moshe gives a gansarichas. He says, I'll go right through the land. We'll pay for all the food, so on and so forth. But look, you know, um, we just want to traverse your land and cross the other side of Jordan. Notice we have no designs in your territory, which was true. It's not part of Eretz Yisrael. But as we all know, but Sichon didn't listen. Even though Moshe makes it sound like it was a good deal, means you're going to make a lot of money, buddy. Uh, but it didn't work. Which is an interesting expression like Pharaoh. Which means, pure logic should have said, let these guys through. Is Moshe a liar? I don't think he has such a reputation. So if they'll come through, let him through. and You'll actually duck a, a, a bullet. The only reason you can explain from a logic, polyscience point of view, is, Hashem is Ruch HaVimitz that God made him stubborn. Uh, 
Now, there's a lot of ways of interpreting it, like just like you can do with Paro, maybe Hashem, uh, let's put it this way, maybe Hashem made it that the Benos Moab and all that junk should happen right at this time, so should, and they should hit with a plague, so he should look like the Jews are weak, and won't be able to take him on. I mean, uh, that's a nice divide Torah there. But whatever the case is, he went ahead and wiped them out. Okay, so listen very closely. I just wiped out Sichon. Now, I can go straight into Israel. So what they should have done at this point, let's say Sichon brings you up roughly opposite uh, Yericho, which is what it does. So, wait a minute. Now the job is to move west and cross the Jordan and proceed to undertake the big mitzvah of the conquest of the Zion Amment. That's what's called the Grand Quest, Holy Grail. That's what the Jews were told over and over again they should do. Should do. Lo sechai, kol neshom, etc., etc., etc. Not the rest of the Middle East. That's the reason they left Edom alone and Ammon and Moab, because it's not their land. The Jews didn't say we're some invading Mongol horde. We have a very specific tafkid, and we're taking land that Hashem promised us, like it says in Brazier's Bar, the first Rashi. So, the funny thing is, and this is what caught my attention, they do not do that. So if you look in Parshish Dvarim, which is this week's Parsha, I'm giving you an assignment. At the beginning of chapter 3, I hate to use the chapters, but there it is. What the heck is that? Instead of moving to the left, to the west, and crossing the Jordan, which they can do now, because by taking over the territory of Sichon, they now automatically have a big area open to them, adjacent to the Zion Amin, to the Canaan. So they don't need to deal with anybody else. And just as they didn't deal with Moab and Ammon and Edom and the others, so why deal with Og and you know Aram and all the other Goyim out there? Right? In spite of what I just said, they did head north. You see? So, wait a minute. Why did they do that? And Sichon immediately went out. And Adre and attacked him a ward. I don't blame Sicha. I'm sorry, Og, I meant to say. And Og immediately rushed to the border to defend his kingdom. So, in other words, when they were fighting Sichon, Og did not participate. If they're out to take Sichon, that's got nothing to do with me. Now, Og expected, naturally, taking Moses at his word. Ebrabi Artsecha Moshe said, Right? What did Moshe say to Sichon? You know, uh, that we just want to cross through your territory. So now that circumstances made it, that Sichon got wiped out, so the Jews should not have anything to do with the territory of Og, which would be the northern half of the Avery part. Boshan. But Moshe didn't do that. Moshe marched north. So why did he do that? And then Hashem says, "Al tiro so kibiyocha nasati so is kamolo biyosis lo kashiyosis lisichun." So Hashem, don't worry about it. We can wipe out also. Why didn't Hashem tell him like this? Adrabo, what are you heading north for? You got a bad compass? 
You know, you got a bad, uh, you know, directional finder. You're supposed to head west. In Terence throw. What are you taking on oath? Hashem didn't do it. So it sounds like, first of all, I don't know exactly what it sounds like, but it, it's weird. Uh, I remember looking at this in the past. The only person I know that noticed this, even though it's kind isn't it obvious what I'm saying over here? I mean, I don't think it's a big insight of mine, but I don't see Rashi and the others you know, going into this. The only one I saw, as I mentioned before, was the Nitziv, which was interesting to me. Although he puts his uh, own particular, you know, spin on it, uh, which is speculative. I mean, like, like I say, I don't know, you know. It's it, it's hard to tell. But the question is a very good question. It jumps out at you. Uh, and back in Pasha's Chukas, when this is first mentioned, because Moshe Rabbeinu in our Pasha is simply retelling a story that everybody's supposed to know. But if you go back... Members of Alkin Yomra, Moshlin Bo, Cheshbon, and all this stuff. And then it says, So that Pasik is in Chukas, in Perkhafalov. And then it says, Where is it? Uh, it says, that Hashem had to tell Moshe, don't be scared, because Moshe was scared. Why would Moshe be scared? Now, by the way, there are Midrashic interpretations that Moshe was scared. Again, a very famous word we all learned in elementary school. Rashi says that what he got was scared because Og Melchabajan had Zechus that he served Avram, and all, even though he really didn't, but you know, he was of service to Abraham at one point or another. But this is the Og of the Midrash. You know, that he was one of the guys on the ark and so forth. But the Pashup Shad is the Og was a gigantic person. It does say that. But he's a king. In one of these territories, he was a tough dude. And um, they took him out. But, you know, why did they go after Og? Okay? Why did they go after Og? Uh, I remember you here, I'm looking at their Barbano. Right? Who dare Hagarata? But the Abarbanal, as is sometimes the case, he just dismisses that's an Agarata. Inshallah, Yermigros, they're just scared because he's a powerful guy. Genetsev says, and it's not exactly what I was thinking, but at least it's in line with what I'm thinking, which surprised me nobody else talks about it. The Hashem had to tell Moshe, don't be scared, even though Moshe was scared, because Moshe said, basically, we did something wrong. Uh, we seemingly uh, d- diverged from the route that we're supposed to take. Uh, this is what the Nitziv says. Had to get in this kind of war without paying attention that their actions might lead to a war against Basha. And and it had nothing to do with fighting to get their way into Israel, because that they already had by conquering Sichon. And so you're taking over territory without being, uh, you know, unnecessarily, as we would say. Um, and therefore, Hashem had to promise him, Shalom Yimenu, Kimeito Melchab, Kimeito, Gizborcha Yisibu, Adobar Kashibu, Sivu Dvar. So Nitziv has a theory 
that, you know, for whatever reason, it doesn't know why. I don't know why either. We had, Hashem wanted to expand the Avery Yardin, and therefore he put into the mind of, like, the Jewish soldiers to, you know, diverge from orders and provoke a war with Sichon so that Sichon be wiped out because Hashem wanted to wipe out Sichon because probably he's angry at him because Sichon had uh, dissed Avraham. Then he knows, then you get Midrashic again. But what I take from this, is you have the following scenario, which is a very interesting scenario. Moshe has a big war. I'm sorry. Moshe has a big nation, a big army. They're going to take on some heavy wars. They are marching, as I said before, towards Eretz Yisrael. But it's an army. It wasn't a Roman army, you know, where everybody's a robot. Uh, the Roman army, nobody made a move without exact orders. But it's a Jewish army. And, you know, Lamachir Nasan is a Gilad. You know, sometimes some of these guys went on and did their own thing. That's what Machir did. So, the Jews are cocky. They're, uh, you know, feeling their roots. Arrogant. They just took down Sichon, who was a mighty king. And that brought him up against the border of Og. And some of these guys crossed the border into Og's territory, probably committed some raids or things like that. Uh, without orders. And Og freaked out, mobilized the whole country, and went to attack the Jews. And so, probably, Moshe called in these Jewish raiders, that who the heck gave you permission to act without orders? You just provoked a war we don't need. And Hashem said, no, I'll tear so don't worry. I have, nothing happens without me being part of it, and I put it into the minds of these young, cocky raiders to cross the river and raid the Og territory to provoke him. It doesn't explain why Hashem did that, the result, of course, is a very rapid conquest and extermination, because that's what we're talking about over here, extermination, and uh, a huge territory falls into the lap of the Jews. But once that, once you understand that happens, this wasn't part of the original plan. Notice, let's put it this way, it didn't seem to be part of the original plan. The plan was to march into Eretz Israel, not make any sidesteps. If that happened, and it did, you can kind of totally understand the attitude of the two and a half tribes, which was, hey, this is like a bonus, you know? It's like winning the lottery and plus another 10 million on the side. And if it's a bonus, why not take advantage of it? We have all this extra land. Why not settle it? Originally, we would have been among those who crossed over with everybody else once they traversed the Sichon territory. And when we wiped out Sichon, so, okay, it's a little bit of extra territory on, on the other side of Jordan. But once they took over Og, which was big, bigger than Sichon, and again, I recommend, if you're interested, you can look on the map that I just said before, and the territory of Og, I think, would be Menashe, Chatzay Shevet Menashe. And it's big, baby, it's big. Okay? Um... The, the the place of Edre, if if we have um, correctly surmised it, would be Mamish in the, how should I put it, in the Jordanian side, I don't know, not so far away, or, or roughly along the same level as the as the southern Canaret. So you're deep in enemy territory. And now they wiped it out. You know, 
you went for miles and miles, you didn't see anybody. And so basically, it's a, it's a big temptation. Uh, Moshe was angry, if I understand this correctly, not necessarily because they wanted to take that land, but because it have a psychologically counter effect on the rest of the Jews. Why are you discouraging or weakening the others from going land? If it was just you, I could hear the vort. But if it's going to creep into the others as become infected with defeatism, then it's not going to be any good. So it turns out that the conquest of Og was like screwball. Um, it, it, it was sort of unexpected. It was not commanded. Hashem only said, I'm going to take care of him once Hog attacked us. But that happened as a result of what I said before. We started started marching north. Uh, Or at least some of us did. And that provoked a war. So it kind of reminds you very much of the Middle East, which is, it's so easy to get involved in war. All you need is someone to blow up, you know, a mosque or something like that somewhere. And next thing you know, the whole place is at war. Uh... I don't feel 100% comfortable with having grasped the whole story. The only logical explanation, and I don't like explanations that are too logical, but the only logical explanation is Og was so powerful that if the Jews, in addition to taking out Sichon, also took out Og, then the Canaanites would rip Mamish melt their heart. So Hashem said, you know, I've Kibiyoch uh, and so, you know, I already arranged all this. And uh, you know, as a result, uh, let's put it this way: you're gonna, you're gonna, um, you know, uh, terrify the enemy or something like that. Notice it says that they left no prisoners. I built Yisrael Sarid. So Hashem uh, said, basically, I'm using the Og kingdom uh, to make a bigger Roshim on the enemies that you're about to face. Maybe Hashem is aware, obviously, that Moshe is going to die. And if the enemy is courageous, then the Jews might panic. Because the Jewish army, even though theoretically it was very powerful, but they were brittle and hollow. And the reason I say it is because everybody's pretty, I'm sure, knows the story. That in the book of Joshua and Yeshua, as soon as they have their first um, setback, which is 36 guys get killed in I, which is nothing in an army. I'm not making light of casualties, but, you know, 36 is garnished. The whole army freaked out, and they went fasting, and they went crazy, and they said, you show what's happening to us. They're very brittle. They couldn't, they couldn't handle, you know, challenges. But if you take out Sichan and Og, the enemy's even more brittle. And maybe that's the way Hashem operates. I don't know. Um... We do know that anything happens in the Middle East, even beyond the Middle East, always, at least I always think, you know, plays out in uh, in what happens to Israel's. I have theories about this and my whole readings of history. Um, but this would be a very early example of that, at least in my opinion. Um, other than that, makes no sense. Anyway, I throw that out for you to consider. I think it's a, a, a nice nugget of shot questions. And with that, I wish you all a uh, easy nine days. I want to thank Dr. A. and Sison and family for sponsoring this and the next uh, uh, podcast.
for sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.